Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Will Pomeranz, Deputy Director of the Canon Institute, and I want to welcome everyone to this book talk on Citizen Countess, Sofia Pandina, and the Fate of Revolutionary Russia. I'm sure you're all Zoom experts now, but uh, in order to ask questions, uh, we need you to submit them via email uh, to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Uh, we are delighted to have Adele Lindemar here, who is a professor of history and dean at Villanova University, to discuss her book uh, uh, on citizen, uh, citizen Countess. Uh, Sofia Panina is one of the most remarkable members of her generation that made the Russian Revolution. She was an aristocrat uh, who was engaged in progressive social work, and she ultimately became the first female government minister after the fall of the Romanovs. She was later arrested as an enemy of the people and faced the Petrograd Revolutionary Trib Tribunal before she fled her homeland in 1920. Uh, again, I want to just introduce Adele and give a brief, brief biography. She is a professor of history. She is also the author of Poverty is Not a Vice, Charity, Society, and the State in Imperial Russia. She is also co-editor of Russia's Home Front in War and Revolution, 1914 to 1922, and the forthcoming volume, uh, Women and Gender in Russia's Great War and Revolution. Uh, this is the time that normally I hold up the book, but we're going to have Adele hold up the book. Uh, it is available at the University of Wisconsin Press website, as well as from Amazon and the Barnes and Noble's website. So we're going to begin. So Adele, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Will, and thank you, Kennan Institute, for this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics and uh, a woman who's occupied my, my uh, mind and my heart for, for many years. I'll start with the question that I'm often asked, which is, how did I become interested in Sofia Panina? There really uh, has been no biography of her, uh, not in Russian nor in English. She is uh, usually given a sentence or two or maybe a footnote in studies of the Russian Revolution because of her sensational trial. She was the first uh, enemy of the people, the first defendant in the Bolsheviks' uh, first trial of a public, uh, a political enemy. And I, I don't think I even knew much about her in that regard, but I was doing research on the role of women in Russian charity. And I discovered her and her extraordinary uh, creation, the Ligovsky Narodny Dom, the Ligovsky People's House in St. Petersburg. So then I discovered that she had lived the last part of her life in New York City and left her papers to the Bakhmetyev archive. And it took me just one visit to the archive to become absolutely fascinated by the long and complex and often interrupted life of this woman who was born a countess and an heiress in Moscow in 1871, 
and died in Roosevelt Hospital in New York City in 1956 with $200 in her savings account and a $50 a month social security pension. So um, on the face of it, it's sort of a riches to rags story. And then because I had already scheduled a trip to Russia uh, in, well, actually still then for a few more weeks, the Soviet Union in November of 1991, I decided to see if her people's house, her Narodny Dom still existed. And to my astonishment, it did still exist. In fact, it looks almost exactly the same as it did when she built it in 1903. And what I discovered there inside uh, the institution was this passionate group of local historians and poets and artists who were busy resurrecting her story and reinterpreting her as not an enemy of the people, a white Russian and a countess who opposed the revolution, but rather a progressive, enlightened friend of the people and Democrat. And in the introduction to my book, I go into more description of what it was like to completely un unannounced arrive at the People's House, which is still today known as the Railroad Workers Palace of Culture, and discover this group of people. And this, of course, was happening all across Russia, but resurrecting forgotten pages of Russian history in search of a usable past. So that is how I became fascinated and committed myself to writing the life of this woman, which at the time I thought would be easy because after all, there was this archive in New York City. And so all I needed to do was take the train up from Philadelphia and, and it, would be, it would be done. Well, it turned out actually to be far, far more difficult and to take me far, far longer. But also uh, the, the project took me to places that I never would have, I never would have encountered, uh, never would have visited. And, and to meet people like this group of uh, passionate uh, Pinancy, they call themselves, uh, whom I met in the early 1990s. So that's by way of introduction. I'll say a few words about what the goals uh, were, uh, became as I, as I worked on the book project and, and what I hoped to achieve. My first goal, of course, was to reconstruct this, which turned out to be much harder than I thought. She lived in Russia, she lived in different parts of Europe for 20 years. And then she lived the last 16 years of her life in the United States. And as she left each place, she wasn't thinking of her future biographer and her biographer's kids. So the, the uh, reconstruction of her life was a challenge and it was a fascinating and at times frustrating one. And, and there certainly are still some blank spots. Entirely able to, to fill 
Although that's the fun of it too, is to make educated speculations. I also wanted to want to understand in, in this book how her life intersected with major changes and events in her time in both Russian and world history. Uh, she lived, as I said, a long life, experienced wars, revolutions, forced migration, as well as the emancipation of women, the evolution uh, and the decline in influence of aristocracy. She was also a participant in the rise and fall of Russian liberalism, and then uh, played a very visible role in 1917, where she, a member of several different major political organizations, the Petrograd City, the Central Committee of the Constitutional Democratic Party, and then the Provisional Government between February and October of 1917. So my first goal was to, to reconstruct this life and then to to understand the, its intersections with these events and, and to use her as an eyewitness in a sense. And then because her life was so fragmented, so disrupted both by personal adversity as well as one might say historical geopolitical adversity, I wanted to understand what enabled her to overcome and to not just survive, but really repeatedly reinvent herself in the face of adversity. Um, she, she was, after all, um, she ended up on the losing side of history. Uh, we all know the, the expression, uh, history is written by the victors. And so I wanted to write a history from the perspective in a way of, of the losers. Um, I wanted to see if I could use her life to tell a different narrative about modern Russia through the perspective of this very independent and self-assured and accomplished woman through the lens of her as a progressive philanthropist who doesn't fit into either the radical go to the people stereotype or the Lady Bountiful stereotype, and through the lens of Russian liberalism and sort of the path not taken. As a, as a committed liberal, she really, uh, in 1917, but throughout her, her social work in St. Petersburg, committed herself to a different path of progress for Russia. So, uh, I found it very interesting and rewarding to, to try to reconstruct a different narrative of Russian history through her life. So, uh, Will, would you like me to stop here, or? No, if, you, if there's something else that you want to kind of put forward so that, uh, to kind of open the discussion. Sure. Uh, so that uh, when we have these questions coming. Um, Good. So they can ask kind of the full gamut of questions about her life and her experience both in 1917 and afterwards. Well, I will, um, I will save the, I, I won't recount her life. You did a very nice job of very briefly 
summarizing it, but I'll, I'll wait to address the questions about particular aspects of her life. I'll talk a bit more uh, just of the challenges as I, I encountered. Um, first of all, there was, as I mentioned briefly, the challenge of sources once I realized that this was not going to be just a series of trips to the Bakhmetyev Archive at Columbia University. And I ended up, in fact, visiting and using 10 different libraries and archives in Russia, uh, three in Great Britain, one in France, and several in the United States. And what I also discovered is not only were these were there these these fragmentary sources that sometimes it was just luck, sometimes it was a helpful uh, uh, historian or, or one of these dedicated pandinsi in St. Petersburg who would lead me in the right direction. But also I discovered that uh, Sophia Panina herself really, um, she edited her archive very carefully and uh, removed in particular personal documents. She never wrote a personal autobiography uh, of her entire life. What I was able to find was just fragments and a piece that she wrote and published posthumously in Novo Journal in New York City that is mostly about her people's house. So she, she burned letters, she, she destroyed documents um, just to, to keep me on my toes. And then I had to learn, uh, another challenge was learning how to do biography, which I also thought originally was very easy. After all, you have a beginning and a middle and an end. But because a person's life intersects with so many different histories, family history, history of education, legal history. In her case, she was divorced. And so how did she, how did she navigate the, the divorce laws in late imperial Russia? To say nothing of, of a woman who participated in, in philanthropy, but also in politics in World War I and, and the revolution and in the Civil War. So in fact, it became uh, a, a much more difficult task. Um, biography is not as, as easy as it looked to me. Probably everybody else knows that, but I had to find it out the hard way. And then the final challenge I'll mention is the uh, personality of my heroine, my protagonist. Uh, everybody adored her. As I explained in the introduction to my book, I, I never found, uh, I mean, except for the propagandistic accusations of her as a, as a saboteur against the Bolshevik revolution and an enemy of the people, nobody ever, I never found a negative thing that anybody said about her. And I was fortunate enough to meet two relatives of hers, uh, a brother and sister, who knew her when they were children and she lived in New York City and they were growing up. And she often served as their babysitter. And they confirmed that she was just an utterly charming person. Uh, and, and so trying to be, trying to be critical was occasionally 
quite a challenge because she was uh, a, a woman of great charm and commitment and, and uh, uh, likability. I do try to be uh, balanced and to examine her as a product of her time and class, as well as somebody who really transcended time and class. So I will, I will pause there. Great, Adele. Um, I just want to remind people that you can submit questions. Uh, we already have a few uh, coming in, but you can submit them by email uh, to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org. Twitter at Cannon Institute or on our page. So I, I want to begin uh, where you kind of left off. Uh, she, you said that she was kind of admired and you know accepted into emigre circles and so forth, but there always is the stigma of the loser and the emigre community that uh, was often reminded uh, that the provisional government uh, were the losers and that they had to a certain extent, lost all of the traditions and history of aristocratic Russia. So when she comes to the United States and she interacts with the emigre community, um, does, does she find herself kind of in that camp? I mean, I've I, I read about hostile meetings with Kerensky uh, when he shows up to kind of talk about his role in traditional government. Um, what was her ex uh, reception? Uh, to in, in the emigrate community in, in that regards um, that's a that's a really wonderful question and and she she was a member of the uh, constitutional democratic party central committee until it basically collapsed in 1921 at that time she really washed her hands of the the swamp uh, as as she called it of of emigrate political conflict she spent then uh, three years from 1921 to 24 in Geneva, where she was a representative of the um, Russian Zemstva movement abroad, uh, advocating for assistance to Russian refugees with uh, Nansen, the first high commissioner for refugee affairs of the League of Nations. That was too political for her. And so in 1924, she left for Prague and she found the Prague emigrate community very congenial. A lot of professors, a lot of academics, uh, politics were pretty muted and benign. And she uh, ran a, a community center for Russian emigres funded in part by the Czechoslovakian government called the Russian Hearth. Ruski Achak. And she threw herself into that and, and really kept out of politics. And then when she came to the United States, it was 1939, and she was in her late 60s. And by then, the, it was probably really only Kerensky who was still trying to fight the Russian Revolution. Uh, she, she was mostly involved with uh, the Tolstoy Foundation, which she helped to establish in 1939. And she was became a close friend of, uh, well, not exactly friend. I don't think they were really very friendly, uh, but they were acquaintances. 
she became a close associate of Alexandra Tolstoy's and uh, threw herself into the work of the Tolstoy Foundation, which assisted displaced persons and, and refugees. So unlike uh, others, other emigres, she really stepped outside of politics and, and didn't litigate the Russian Revolution over and over again the way some of them did. Great. Uh, we do have some questions. Uh, a reminder again, you can submit them via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Uh, we have two questions from Brad Bradley, a professor emeritus from the University of Tulsa. Uh, he asked, was the Narodi Dom like settlement house? Jane Adams visited Tolstoy on a trip to Russia in the 1890s. Did Sophia Paninan know, know about Jane Adams? And his second question, at the trial, Panina was labeled an aristocrat and an enemy of the people. She was tried ostensibly for financial irregularities, embezzlement, did the Bolsheviks poison her or go after her? What's the last part of the question, Will? Why, why didn't the Bolsheviks, well, he asked why did the Bolsheviks, why, why did the Bolsheviks let her leave, essentially? Okay, all right. Why, um, didn't, why didn't they go after her in the whole right. variety of ways that the Bolsheviks could go after people? So, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I, I never found a reference to Jane Addams in anything Sophia Panina wrote or uh, either in, in her published account of the establishment of the People's House or, or any private correspondence. I, she did visit Toynbee Hall, the first settlement house in London. Uh, I found her name in the visitor's book, but she never wrote about the settlement house movement. She insisted, despite the resemblances between her institution and Russian Narodnya uh, Dama, people's houses in general, she insisted that it was quite unique. And there's a, one major difference, which is that the Anglo-American settlement house had middle and upper class men and women who came and lived at the institution. The idea being that then they would really become closer to the, uh, the poor and uh, help to create cross-class harmony. And she never, uh, th there were no, no settlers in the People's House. But the People's House was a, a movement that spanned uh, uh, all of Europe. There were French versions, German versions, they were called Volksheimer in German, uh, Belgian, Italian. These were institutions set up for urban, uh, the urban poor where they could uh, find education and culture and with the goal of turning them into responsible citizens. And although she insisted her institution was unique, it really was quite typical of those people's houses and not of the rather special Anglo-American settlement house. The Bolsheviks um, at her trial, they didn't let her go. They, they sent her back to prison. They, they found her guilty, but offered to let her go if she would pay back the money that she was accused of having steal, stolen. Uh, she had taken the petty, what amounted to the petty cash 
in the Ministry of Education and asked to uh, civil servants in the ministry to deposit it in a bank in the name of the constituent assembly. And she refused to say what the bank was. I still don't know where the money ended up. She never said. And so she refused to pay what in effect would be a ransom. She said the, at her trial that uh, she didn't consider it a legitimate government and she wouldn't tell where the money was until there was a legitimate government in Russia. But friend, and so they sent her back to prison for another three weeks. But friends on the outside got very worried about her safety and they raised the money to ransom her out of prison. And she was released. Um, I guess she was in prison for a total of just over three weeks, almost a month. Uh, and she was released just before Christmas 1917. And then at the request of the Bolshevik commandant of the women's prison, she went back on Christmas Day with her magic lantern and slides to give a Christmas presentation to the to the prisoners. So somewhere in some Russian bank, there's still money to hold a constituent assembly. It is still money in the name of the constituent assembly. Yeah. That's very, very. It's not. It's not the Russian gold, but it is. Yes. Uh, Ninety-three thousand rubles. Okay. A follow-up question about the trial and so forth. Was she related to the Romanovs? No. 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 She was related. She was descended from the the 18th century Panins, Nikita Panin mm -hmm. and Pyotr Panin, the general who fought against Pugachev. Uh, and her, uh, like Nikita and Pyotr, uh, her grandfather, Viktor Panin, is very well known in Russian history as being the Minister of Justice in, uh, under Nicholas II and Alexander II, Nicholas I and Alexander II, uh, more than 40 years, and for being an enemy of emancipation, which he nonetheless helped to carry out. He was her paternal grandfather. Mm -hmm. Another question, is Panina a well-known figure in modern Russia? And if so, how do Russians view her legacy today? She's still not very well known. Uh, I, I hope someday this book will be translated into Russian. Uh, there are pockets of, uh, again, local historians who know her well. Uh, she's well known in St. Petersburg. And she, uh, the Panins had an estate in uh, 40, about 40 kilometers north of Moscow in uh, the village of Marfina. And there's a local history society there that is, uh, with whom I've, I've corresponded and, and worked and visited a number of times, and they are uh, passionate about her life and legacy, which includes this magnificent Russian Gothic estate, Marfina, which still belongs to, to the Ministry of Defense. It's not easy to visit. Uh, here's a question. Uh, did you ever communicate with the Lahovich family? Oh, yes, yes. Um, okay. Vlad Lahovich is, uh, this book wouldn't exist without Vlad and his sister Olga. 
Mm -hmm. And who, 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 who were they? And are... Oh, okay. So they are the, um, the uh, children that I mentioned. For, the children they mentioned, okay. Um, uh, Dmitry Luhovich, who, who uh, wrote a wonderful biography of Denikin, uh, he, um, and a history of the Civil War. He, uh, his wife, Yevgenia, was the granddaughter of Sofia Panina's first cousin, Sergei Urusov. And so uh, Vlad and Olga Lukovic knew her as Aunt Sophie. Okay. Had no children, so she had uh, re descendants. Mm -hmm. uh, a question from Marta Chomiak. Uh, during the events, during the 1905-1907 events, the liberal women's organizations in Russia were among the few political forces to recognize political and cultural demands of the minorities. Was Panina in any way interested in that subject? Uh, I would say no. She was a Russian, Russia won and united. Uh, mm -hmm. she, uh, she was not um, an advocate of, of national minority rights to my, mm -hmm. and not that she particularly opposed them, it was just not uh, it was not an issue for her. Okay. Um, again, a, a reminder, if you want to ask questions, you can submit them via email to kenanatwilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Um, let's see, do we have another question here? Um, so, so if she was one in United, uh, how did she, I mean, uh, did, did, did she, did she ever view the Soviets of trying to kind of recreate the imperial space uh, as kind of the uniter of lands that were going away from the Russian Empire? Or did she voice an opinion about that, uh, the, the attempts of the Bolsheviks to kind of reincorporate all the old parts of the empire? I, I, I will tell you that the most difficult part of this book to write was the chapter on the Civil War. She was, um, after, after she was released from prison, she went to Moscow where she uh, worked with the cadet party in the underground and eventually uh, left Moscow in uh, the summer of 1918 and spent the rest of the Civil War in the South, uh, where she was uh, sort of loosely associated with the Denikin white government in the South. And she, she pledged herself to the white cause. And, and that's what I was referring to, that one of the, um, one of the white government, the Southern white government's uh, principles was Russia one and united. And of course, she watched as, as uh, along with everyone else, as different parts of the former empire, the Baltics, Ukraine for a while, uh, were, became independent or semi-independent republics, and then were many of them amalgamated back into the USSR. This was not a, 
she was a Russian patriot. She wasn't, I don't, she wasn't a nationalist. I never found any indication that she had ardent nationalist feelings, but she was, she was a, a, a strong patriot and no supporter of czarism at all. She committed herself to the liberal ideals of a, a representative government, democracy, and an enlightened citizenship, citizenry. And that's what she tried to create in her years as, as a social worker in St. Petersburg before, before the revolution. So I don't really think, and as I said earlier, once she left Russia, she really left politics behind. Her focus became refugee relief. So, so I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, obviously she was a prominent person in terms of social activist, but how did she manage to parlay that into a position into the provisional government? Well, I'm... Into the provisional government or did, was she an obvious choice? Um, how I, did she make that transition? So uh, her first political role in 1917 was to be co-opted along with seven other women, prominent women in Petrograd, into the Petrograd City Council. And then next, she was elected as the second female member of the Cadet Party Central Committee. Now, uh, Ariadna Tirkova-Williams, who was the, the only one before Panina, She'd been one of the founders of the party. She'd been a member of the Central Committee since its origins. Sofia Panina was, in a way, uh, a, an unusual choice since she really had not belonged to the party. She didn't join the party until 1917, until after the February Revolution. But her stepfather was Ivan Petrunkevich, the founder, the father of Russian liberalism. And so he, by, by this time, by 1917, he's retired. He's living down in Crimea, uh, following party affairs very closely. But in a way, it was kind of a nod to him to elevate her to the Central Committee. And then because of her reputation as a philanthropist, when the first Ministry of State Welfare was created, she was... I think probably an obvious choice as assistant minister for welfare. So, and there's no, there's no suggestion that she had any influential political role in, in the provisional government. She attended some meetings, some cabinet meetings. Uh, she was appointed later assistant minister of education. Her most active political time was this intense month between the October Revolution and her arrest on November 28, 1917, when she really, because of these roles that she played in the city council, in the party, in the provisional government, she became uh, a, a key link in the underground opposition movement to the Bolshevik seizure of power. And uh, was arrested uh, as 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 this saboteur uh, and embezzler 
not embezzler. Really, she, she was not accused of embezzlement. She was accused of theft. I think there's a difference. <laughs> Maybe it's a slight difference, but there's a difference. Uh, another question from Patricia Leslie. Could you talk more about what Panina did and achieved during her time in the U.S.? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I will, I will uh, reiterate that she was in her late 60s when she arrived in the United States. She had to earn her own living. She, uh, she continued to work. She did private lessons, she, uh, she tutored, she even made handicrafts for sale, as well as then eventually working as Alexandra Tolstoy's uh, secretary when uh, Alexandra Tolstoy was writing her biography of her father. And she uh, was very active with the Tolstoy Foundation which uh, was, uh, had a, a kind of a subcontract with the UN uh, High Commission for Refugees to help provide assistance after World War II to uh, displaced persons and resettlement of refugees in the United States. And so she stayed extremely active. She also, as I said, babysat the Lehovich children and uh, she traveled. She spent some time in California, which she loved, and uh, spent a long period of time in France in the 50s. Um, Katie Clay, uh, Professor Emeritus from Shippenburg University, uh, asked uh, if uh, Panina was in touch with suffragettes in the US or in England or at any other time. Not to my knowledge, no. This is one of the puzzling uh, uh, riddles to solve, which I'm, I think I only got partway through in this book, was to, to identify what kind of a feminist she was. She did not join any of the leading feminist organizations in Russia, especially the most prominent one being the League uh, for the Equality of Women. But she was at the same time very uh, instrumental in March of 1917 in persuading Prime Minister Lvov to uh, remove his, his objections to a suffrage vote for women. And uh, I think her, her uh, persuasion was, was quite influential in in switching uh, the cadet party's uh, reluctance to move to women's suffrage. But it was not a cause that she affiliated herself with explicitly. And by the time she left Russia in 1920, um, of course, suffrage had, had been won by women in, in both Great Britain and the United States. And she didn't, she didn't associate with reformers from Europe or the United States uh, after she left Russia. She, she kept uh, herself primarily within the Russian immigrant communities where she lived. Uh, another question from Joseph Bradley. My great-grandfather, Charles R. Crane, also worked with and funded Russian refugees after 1917 
Uh, Crane was a liberal, knew many cadets, and invited Milyakov to speak at the University of Chicago. Did Panina know, did Panina know or know about him? Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, uh, he and um, trying to remember, I think it's his brother, were uh, supporters of this Russian emigre community center in, Czech, in Prague that she directed. And so she knew the Cranes and corresponded. There are letters uh, to her from uh, Charles Crane and his brother, John, I think is, is his name, uh, in, in the archive in, in, at Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Dunn asks uh, another research question. Uh, what was the research process like in terms of finding and going through archival material? You've talked about this a little bit, but maybe you can go a little bit more into detail. Well, I, 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 I had a ball, actually. I, I think it's really a treat to read dead people's letters. It was... It was really fascinating. It was a detective hunt, uh, some very unexpected finds and some very long fruitless days in archives, which in many cases uh, had just opened in the 90s. Uh, it, this project could not have been done earlier uh, because there were, there were certain restrictions because she's identified as a, as a white uh, Russian enemy of, of Soviet power, so uh, it was it was the joy of discovery and the long days of discovering nothing, learning how to read Russian handwriting, um, and yes, all those challenges. Yes, yes, that uh, that was that was also a challenge and and a, a sense of of great accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Always trying then to, you're not only trying to reconstruct the story, but get a better understanding of this person as best you can. And did you kind of, you mentioned earlier that she was kind of self-selected and removed materials. Did, did you find some, were you, did you go looking for stuff that you thought that was, had to be there, but that she had removed? Uh, the the, the uh, materials that she removed were when she, uh, decided to leave her papers to Columbia. And that, mm -hmm. in fact, I found a letter <clears throat> that she wrote in the early 50s to a cousin in Paris, in which she wrote um, that uh, she was giving her papers to Columbia and she wrote, And I thought, I knew it. I knew you were burning these. I knew you were removing things. Uh, her archive in Colombia has uh, almost no personal correspondence whatsoever. But I was able to find personal correspondence, including I think one of the one of the most important finds was a series of more than fifty letters that she wrote to a girlhood friend, and they. Uh, I discovered completely by accident in a personal archive in Garf in Moscow. And then there was the assistance of 
uh, the Lukoviches, who had some personal papers that um, she left at, at her death in New York in a, in a battered old suitcase. And just uh, some very fortuitous discoveries and just um, a lot of detective work and a lot of luck. So you mentioned how you uh, obviously want this book to be translated and you want more people to understand the history of, of, the, of uh, Sophia Pamina. Uh, is she taught that, is taught at all in Russian schools? And how I don't think so. I don't, I don't think and so. how would you like her to be presented uh, in terms of <laughs> the grand scheme of either the history of the revolution or women's movements, et cetera, et cetera? Where do you think she could be taught and have resonance uh, in today's Russia? That, uh, nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a very challenging question. Let me make a, a, a stab at answering it. If, if this were the 90s, she could be taught, she would be taught as somebody who represented this alternative, this uh, alternative of gradual evolutionary progress through education and cultural enlightenment and moderate, uh, one could even say bourgeois democratic values. Uh, I don't think that today, that would, that would have exactly the same resonance. I think um, she, also in the 90s, when there was this huge resurgence of private charity in post-Soviet Russia, late Soviet and post-Soviet Russia, her very distinctive kind of progressive philanthropy with its international reverberations, the Settlement House Movement, the European People's House Movement, I think then she could have, and, and today could be, could be taught as, as representative of a particular, particularly progressive in my view, uh, form of philanthropy. And, but, so it, if this were the 90s, I think I would be able to answer that question much better uh, than how she would how she would resonate in Russia today. I, I uh, there was a there's considerable interest in her among scholars, uh, for example, at the Dom Ruskova Zarubezhia in Moscow would the institute that studies Russia abroad, the Russian diaspora. There's considerable interest in her as one of the uh, leading, one of really the leaders of first wave Russian emigrate community life. She was uh, one of the founders of this uh, Day of Russian Culture, which was celebrated in all across the globe and on Pushkin's birthday by Russian emigrate communities. Uh, and, and so there's considerable interest in her among those who, who study the Russian diaspora. Um, I'll 
think I'm. I'm <laughs> that, that, that was a great answer, Adele, for, for, for a question uh, that, that came out of left field. Um, one more, another question. Um, uh, to what extent is the fact that she was a white Russian, does, she, does that impact her, her uh, perceptions and how she's remembered uh, today? Is there, are, are there any sort of remembrances or official organizations that kind of emphasize white Russia? I'm, I'm not aware of them. But well, there, yeah, there's the, there, there's the resurrected assembly of Russian nobility and uh, there, yeah, there's sort of these um, revivals of Russian aristocracy in contemporary Russia, but she's not your typical aristocrat. It's interesting, she used her title her entire life. Uh, one, of the, one of the many contradictions in her, because in other ways she was, uh, she presented herself as very accessible and approachable and people regarded her that way, but she, she was very proud of, of her Panin antecedents and, and her, the Panin family history. But she, she very, uh, as, I, as I detail in one of the early chapters of the book, she, in, in a uh, undramatic but very decisive way, turned her back on Russian aristocratic society in the 1890s. Uh, she was, um, I found in one of these 50 letters, her description of attending the coronation of uh, Nicholas and Alexandra in 1896, and it's quite scathing. I'll just leave it there to tempt potential readers, but it's a very scathing account. And she, and especially after her divorce, she then really um, did not uh, travel in aristocratic circles. Okay, so I think uh, we're, we don't have any other questions in the queue. So I think, uh, Adele, I think you need to hold the book up one more time. And uh, I should emphasize again that it's available. Here it is. And it's available at Barnes & Noble websites and at the University of Wisconsin Press. It's just a fascinating biography. and and slice of imperial and post and, and early Soviet history. And I congratulate you for the publication of the book and your, for, for your you. persistence. Thank you. All those archives and all those letters uh, to tell this very important story. Right, so, thank you very much. Thanks to those who attended and the questions. And uh, I, I hope people will read the book. She was a remarkable person. Great. Thanks so much, Adele, and thank you everyone thank you. for and for attending today's event.